Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Hello everyone, I am your host Robert Stevens and this is the Black Work Experience Podcast. As you may know, I started this podcast because I was tired of being the only black male or one of the few black people at my organization. This can be crazy. I was constantly called upon to speak for the black experience or expected to do the emotional labor after blatantly racist things occurred. This is heavy and it left me feeling fragile, unappreciated and in need of a change. I begin to ask my friends if they ever experienced being the only one or one of the few people of color at their job and the impact it had upon them. We discuss what it felt like to experience microaggressions and not have a friend or ally to lean on. Balancing the thin line between needing your coins and not being tokenized is never easy. The black work experience explores the intersection between race, class, and privilege in America and in the workforce. We tell the stories of those who paved and are currently paving the way. As people of color gain more institutional, political, and economic power, we often find ourselves surrounded by people who do not look like us, talk like us, or even think like us. This podcast discusses what it's like to walk in the shoes of those who feel alone. I fully recognize that not all black people think alike. The stories we share on this podcast may seem foreign to you and your experience, However, a lot of black people experience microaggressions daily, and we need an outlet. This is your outlet. I want you to know that you are not alone. This podcast is for all people, but we focus heavily on black people. I want you to know that you're not the only one experiencing microaggressions, otherness at work, and potential loneliness. If you identify with majority culture, listen to the podcast. Think about how you can help your black colleagues when your coworker talks over them or runs to the manager instead of having a difficult conversation or even calls them intimidating. Lean in, listen, and learn. That's what we're asking of you. Guess what time it is? You guessed it, it's mail time. We had a lot of submissions for mail time this week, and we ask you all to please, please, please keep them coming. You can send your story to us via Instagram at BWEpod, on Twitter at BWEpodcast, and via email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com. We so look forward to reading your stories we do our level best to choose stories that reflect the true diversity and the true nature of our followers. I want you to know how it feels to be the only one that looks like you in a conference room, in a meeting, at a networking event, or happy hour. I want you to know what it feels like to constantly have to assimilate and ingratiate yourself into another group's culture and way of doing things, even though you're citizens of the same country. I want you to know what it feels like to not be able to stand up for yourself or correct someone's assumptions about you or your culture or community for fear of losing your job. I want you to know what it's like to be effective in your role and have the same or more credentials as your peers but be passed over for promotions because you're too serious, because there's a lack of connection. I want you to know what it feels like the desire to move up the ladder and see there are no other examples like you that you can follow. I want you to know what it feels like to see investments made, grace extended, sponsorship provided, risks taken, and opportunities given to and for others but not you. I want you to know the pressure that comes with trying to be perfect and represent your race well because if you make a mistake, the odds of you being given another opportunity are slim. I want you to know what it feels like to live, work, and raise your children in a world where you don't have the the complexion for the connection or the protection. 
as someone who is routinely in rooms with very few or even no one else who looks like me. This resonates with me. I want to read that last, that last sentence again. I want you to know what it feels like to live, work, and raise your children in a world where you don't have the complexion for the connection or the protection. This is deep. This is deep. To be the only one to stand in the gap is a heavy, heavy burden. It's one of the reasons we started this podcast so you all would know that you're not alone. I pray solace and peace for everyone who's navigating these tumultuous waters right now. The Black Work Experience Podcast, we are your reservoir, we are your, we, we are your life jacket. You're, you're seen, you're not alone. Thank you for sharing. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to have Tim Poulian, an award-winning TV journalist on the Black Work Experience podcast. Many of you, I mean, you see his face all over TV if you're here in North Carolina, if you've been in other areas where he's been reporting. But I'm going to tell you this, Tim and I go back because Tim is a graduate of the best HBCU in the land, not in North Carolina, but in the land that is Winston-Salem State University. Tim, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Bram Pride. Thank you so much, Terrell, for having me. Man, the pleasure is all mine. So let's let's jump right into this thing. Tim, tell us about yourself. Who is Tim Pulliam? Tim Pulliam is a Southern boy from North Carolina, a son of this state. Uh, he is an HBCU grad. He is a Johns Hopkins University graduate. Uh, but his passion is storytelling. And he has been, I have been a reporter for 15 years, wow. um, which is which is a feat, you know, because a lot of people don't even make it to that. They, they get in one, two years, and then they're done. But I have been successfully getting doing this work for 15 years, and it's passion work. You know, there is money in this business, but you don't get in it to, for the money. And so what I love to do is tell people stories and learn a little bit about, you know, different topics, politics, race and culture, uh, economy, uh, poverty. You know, there's just so many stories nestled in all of those those genres. And so that is what I love to do. And that is that is who Tim is professionally. Wow. Yeah. Personally, you know, Tim is just a people person, you know, family guy, uh, seeing, you know, people like you and re- reconnecting like Tim. Th- that's where I thrive. I'm so excited that, to have you on here because a lot of our listeners, and I, I call our listeners our workers, but a lot of our listeners, they, they've asked, and I know we see media and journalism, and we see the role that plays in society, but tell us a little bit about your professional career. Like, what do you do, and how did you get there? Okay, so I'll start with what I do, and then I'll talk about how I got here. Uh, so basically, as I said in my intro, I'm a storyteller, so it is my job to find stories that have high impact to a broader audience. So that means networking and meeting people and making contacts with city leaders, uh, people in the community, PR folks, you name it. I'm always constantly building relationships with people so that they can give me story ideas. And a lot of times, some of these individuals, they're not necessarily giving me story ideas. I am listening to them, having conversations with them and listening and saying, oh, that's a story. Oh, let's 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 follow up on that. And so that's where it starts. Once I find a story or I grasp a story in my head, maybe it might be something nationally happening that I can localize. I bring that to an editorial meeting at our station. And that editorial meeting consists of other reporters like myself, producers, station managers, assignment editors. Those are other titles. And we're talking about the news of the day and we're talking about what everybody is pitching. And then we decide, okay, well, what is going to be the stories of the day? What's going to have the most high impact? What can we hold for another day? But what do we need to do right now? And so all of that is listed. 
And then we start assigning. And I'm assigned a story. I go out, I interview, um, shoot it with a photographer, and we put it together for the evening newscast. Mm. Uh, and then your other question, how did I get into this? Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is a very, uh, I'll try to abbreviate. You know, I graduated from Winston-Salem State University with a, a bachelor's degree in mass communication with a concentration in radio television. Mm -hmm. I sent out a lot of tapes of my work while I was at Winston-Salem State, was not getting any pickup. Uh, but I had a friend in Wilmington, North Carolina, who was already working at a small TV station. And they suggested, hey, Tim, I know you're not getting any offers, but if you, you're interested in getting in through the back door, there's a production assistant available with your name on it. Production assistant is somebody who is behind the scenes, you know, giving the anchors the scripts, controlling the audio, doing all the production type work that you would imagine behind the scene. Mm -hmm. I took that job, didn't want it, but I realized that it was something that I was going to have to do if I needed to get in front of managers to prove myself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so once I started doing that for maybe about a couple of months, I started going out with the reporter on their stories on my day off and shooting with them and shooting my own air presentation, putting that together for a sizzle reel mm -hmm. for the managers to look at. And they saw it and long story short, they put me on and the rest is history of me just continually you know, practicing my craft as a reporter and going from one small city to a medium, medium sized city to a large city. Mm. So basically, what, yeah, that makes perfect sense. What I'm hearing you tell me is you had to do the grunt work, right? And Absolutely. So, and so we we see this so many times because you know you're you know you are award winning TV journalist now, so you're so far away from that production assistant, right, in Wilmington. Yeah. But I I think that there's so much power in in sharing this story because a lot of times people see success and they think yeah. that. Oh, this happened overnight, and yeah, they, they see don't the glow see, up. They they don't yeah they they see the glow up, but they don't see what it took to get there. And right. you know I, you know I had a a similar moment last night, and I shared this on on social media. Seven years ago, I was traveling all over the country. I was in Ferguson, you know, mm. I was in New York. I was being shot with rubber bullets, being arrested, oh my you know, slammed, wow. you know, marching in, in Chicago for Laquan McDonald. I mean, you know was, all this, Terrell? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was looking at all of these things, right? I was looking at it. You know, I was in, you know, even in New York with Eric Garner, just like I was in Baton Rouge with Alton Sterling when he was murdered, organizing, trying to find and, and create power amongst Black people. And I, I was just thinking about it. Yeah, the other day I was I was leading a call with Representative Karen Bass, Congresswoman Karen Bass, and you know she's the lead author of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, I, when I worked for Congressman Lewis, I, I had the privilege of writing a piece of legislation that was passed, put into the into that big bill, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and passed. Right. Nice. And I was just thinking, like seven years ago. I was traveling the country, like trying to fight and build political power for black people mm. against police brutality. And like today, today, you know, I am leading a conversation. Yeah, leading a conversation. And even today, you know, this very day, you know, earlier today, I was on a call with, with Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, talking about issues that directly impact black and brown women. And it just made me reflect upon the fact that like, it's been a long seven years, right? It's been mm. a long, a long journey to get here, but yeah. I just wanted to encourage people on my social media and even on this call tonight, like, I don't know what your dreams are. I don't know what, what you're dreaming about or what yeah. you were dreaming about seven years ago. But if you, you stick to the plan and you work hard, you know, like a, a lot of, a lot of good things can happen. So, Absolutely. but I, I, I want to jump in and talk about you, you know, we we're talking about, um, your journey, production assistant, but I really want to know because we delve into like race and class and racism and microaggressions on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, how do you feel your racial identity has really impacted your professional career? Have you seen it stymied as a result of it? Or do you think that your opportunities have been buoyed? I, I can definitely tell you before George Floyd, uh, you know, there were challenges and there still are challenges for black journalists in this industry. But 
we are held to a different type of standard. And I think black people, black, black and brown people, they realize that. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that I couldn't get an opportunity straight out of college as a reporter, knowing, and you know, you know I worked hard at Winston-Salem State, putting yeah. together my work and, and just not to be able to, whereas my counterparts, my, my white counterparts, they were getting on-air jobs immediately. Wow. After, after graduation. So it, it goes back to that old saying that you have to work twice as hard, just as qualified, but have to work twice as hard. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have had, it shouldn't have, that shouldn't have had to have been my story that I had to go into production assistant, but it was. But, you know, there were some learning lessons with that. So I would say that not being taken seriously has always been a challenge when dealing with people that don't look like you that assume that you are not as qualified as someone else. I've constantly had to prove my abilities and my talents throughout my career. Mm. Uh, post George Floyd, you know, we're, we're trend now, mm. you know, and they want us included more. They want to hear mm. our voices. They want to understand, they want to listen. So I'm seeing more of that. Uh, but I have definitely dealt with microaggressions along the way in using my voice. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. pitching different stories that I think that my community would be uh, interested in and then being silenced mm. or, pushed, or pushed aside because yes. my stories are not uh, high impact or they don't impact a broader scope of people, but they impact my people, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the hard parts about about being in these positions where Number one, there are definitely not a lot of us, but mm -hmm. we feel entitled to, or we feel like a sense of, of like we have to share the stories of people who come from where we come from because we know if we don't push these stories, right? And let me just Nobody speak specific will. to you, Tim. If you don't push these stories, no one will. Right. No one will. So that is that is real. You talked a little bit about microaggressions, and I know that they're real. You know, I, I consistently think about that episode of Blackish where where um Bo was in and the hospital and she was talking to a fellow doctor and the doctor was like oh where did you go to school and she was like oh yeah I went to med school at UCLA and he was like mm -hmm. what like you got into UCLA and she was like you know and she had to check him because that was a microaggression he did yeah. not think that she was good enough just because of the color of her skin and so I wanted to ask you you know like can you share one of your most memorable or painful microaggressions that you've experienced as a journalist? Ooh, wow. Yeah, I, I definitely have a few. Um, I would say, and I'm gonna be delicate with this one because this one is very personal. Mm. Um, that really bothered me, but I, I have to say something. I have to say something about it. Um, so I had a manager who, wanted me to cover a certain beat in a certain town, mm -hmm. okay? And keep in mind, I was living in a different town. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, this particular manager wanted me to, to focus on an, a, another town. And so I had issues with that because if you want a beat reporting, what a beat is, is that that reporter is covering everything in that town. Mm -hmm. They know they're covering the, the you know, crime, healthcare, education, they're focused on that town. That is their beat. Okay. And typically, historically, if you are covering a town, you need to live in that community mm -hmm. that you're covering. But they wanted, this manager wanted to pluck me from where I was currently living and put me in this other, this other place. Mm -hmm. And so I pushed back on that. Uh, and when I pushed back and asked questions, my job was threatened. Wow. My job was threatened. Hmm. And I was stunned because here we are, we should be able to have a healthy dialogue. Mm -hmm. I should be able to voice my concerns about covering something that I don't feel is necessary, you know, for me, that I that you need to put somebody else in that role uh, that lives in that community. And so for that to happen, it it let me know that this manager wanted to make it clear that. It, it's their way or the highway. Mm. And that if you try to buck, we will let you go. Wow. Yeah. 
So what ended up happening with this manager? Yeah. They eventually were fired. Mm. Yeah. But you know what they say, you know, Dr. King said it best. And I, and I think about it, he said, um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And right. so, you know, karma, people, people, you get out what you put in. Absolutely. And so, and so, you know, I'm sure that you were not the first nor the last person that he tried to flex. He or she, I don't know who they are, but that they tried to flex, you know, I mean, their positional authority over you. Right. And you're right, you know, you should be able to have uh, a healthy dialogue. And I think that a lot of times when you are one of the few or the only, people do that because they know like, okay, we get rid of him, we can just get another, or they know that, you know. Yeah, and that you may not you you may not be willing to stand up like you were. But that makes me think of something else. This this is an amazing segue because I you know, I, I read and I, I try to prepare for these interviews. And one thing that I that I was looking at as I was preparing was that many journalists, especially journalists of color, have discussed being silenced or having their work tokenized by largely white newsrooms. And, you know, I wanted to know, like, what is that? I mean, you just gave us a good example of what it looks like. He tried to silence you. Um, and you and you told me that you've experienced it in, in this case. But, like, I think that this is a much broader systematic issue. Um, Absolutely. The lack of, of, of people of color in these newsrooms. And so have you dealt with that before? Like, have you been the only person of color and or black man, you know, at your station? And how have how did you manage that? Absolutely, I have. I, I can think very clearly at my very first TV station. I won't name it. I mean, but it's, it's you can clearly find it if you look at my LinkedIn. But, uh, you know, I was the only black person on air when I finally when they finally gave me the shot to be on air. I was the only black person on air. And I remember being told that I pitched too many types of these stories. I was pitching a lot of, you know, Black people stories, you know, things right. that we, we care about. Uh, and I would just re distinctly remember one manager saying, you, you, you pitch too many of these types of stories. Mm -hmm. And that was to insinuate, you know, that that was not the way to go. And it's hard, especially if you are the only one that you need, so you need support. And so what I have seen over the years is a concerted effort to bring more people of color into management. NABJ is one of these organizations, National Association of Black Journalists. Mm -hmm. That is one of their missions, is to hold these news organizations accountable, to make sure that they are putting black and brown people in position of leadership. Mm. And I'm seeing more and more of that now, post George Floyd, but it has always been an issue throughout my entire career that more of my managers look white than like me yeah that's real tell me you know and I just imagine and just imagine how challenging that is if if your staff is multicultural but your management team is lily white and you're trying to pitch a race and culture story to white people that cannot relate mm. and because they can't relate they don't see how it's viable mm. Yeah, how it's viable, how it's important. Let yeah. me tell you, let me tell you this. I've throughout my entire professional career, I've almost always been the only black man, like the only black person, period. You know, I, I don't yeah. know if that's a byproduct of the fact that I work in politics, um, you know, a lobbyist. But I I I, I hearken back to like this one particular organization where I work. And I worked there relatively recently. Uh, I was hired in 2019, and in 2019, this organization was started, you know, almost 65 years ago. Wow. In 2019, I was the first black man ever hired at the organization. crazy. I was the first black man ever hired. I was hired, you know, to sit on the senior leadership team, and I think that this is the problem. They want to hire diversity, black people but they don't create a culture where black people can thrive and authentically be themselves. 
And I think that's one of the issues, like, you know, like there are things that come with hiring black people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that like our stories, our culture, the way we experience life, the way we communicate, you know, and I think that uh, a lot of times we don't, people don't, organizations, people, leaders don't take it into, into consideration. And it makes me think about a show I was just watching. I really love, I'm not a big TV fan. Oh, no offense, Tim. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I really, really like New Amsterdam. It's a, it's a medical show. Okay. Um, I have not med- seen it. It's a medical show. And I, and I like them because uh, the gentleman, his name is Max, but his approach to leadership, whenever people, he's the medical director, but his approach to leadership is always, how can I help? Right. Like he's mm-hmm. he's he's so solution oriented. Right. And like mm-hmm. he, he, he's created a culture where people feel comfortable coming to talk to him. But the ED doctor, um, they, they just had a, this episode where a lot of people like doctors got hurt, roughed up in the ED because uh, a gentleman came in on, on drugs, high off drugs. And they were upset because they said, oh, you know, they the company said they would protect us. And the, the head of the ED took it upon herself. And she went and called some individuals and they said, you know, we're going to send you, we, we're going to take care of this. And they sent cops. And the mm. ED, the, the staff was full of like, you know, people of color. Mm-hmm. And and there was something that that this one individual, because the whole entire culture, like the way the people of color were moving and operating with the cops there, you could see they felt un- un- uncomfortable to say the mm-hmm. least, right? And I'll never forget, the gentleman looked at her and she said, you know, I got the cops here, we're safe now. And he said, who is, who is we? And then he said, he said for, for people like me, who've been stopped and harassed since I was 12 years old, made to sit on the corner. He said, right. you know, even last week I had my scrubs on and I was and I was um tailed and, and and stopped. He said, this isn't this isn't safe. It's just a right. different type of unsafe for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think she couldn't see it because she was a white woman. Sure. And like she, you know, and I think about all the stories that you've pitched, right? That they couldn't see because their their perspective was so markedly different. I, right. I want to I ask you this because we're, we're talking about these white these newsrooms, you know, being lily white. And I did some some research, and it, according to the Census Bureau, racial and ethnic minorities comprise you know almost forty percent of the U.S. population. We're growing mm-hmm. at a rapid rate. Yeah, but Browning make, of America. Exactly. Exactly. But yet we make up less than 17% of newsroom staff at printed online publications and only 13% of newspaper leadership. When you examine, I was looking at other media sources and according to the Radio Television Digital News Association, the number in other medias looks just slightly better. And in 2018, about a quarter of staffers in TV newsrooms are people of quarter, are people of color. And then radio, it's 11.7%. Can you tell me, Tim, from your perspective, because you're front line with it, right? Why sure. do you think that this is the case? Like, why are there not more Black people in, in, in these media? It, it, is, so, it is so systemic. Mm. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go deep for a moment. But one, it starts with recruitment, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say if the recruiters are only going to PWIs, Mm. and not going to HBCUs, you're cutting out a whole segment of opportunity right there, point For sure. blank. For okay? sure. Uh, and two, if you're going to these PWIs and you're, you're looking at a white candidate and you're looking at a black candidate and you are a white recruiter, you shouldn't have a bias. You should not have a bias. But more times than not, what we're seeing just based off of the research the black person is not moving on mm. to get the role. Let's say that the that the person does get their opportunity. For instance, me, mm-hmm. you know, getting getting an opportunity to work at my first station in a very small market. Mm-hmm. Because African Americans, we have been economically disadvantaged. Mm. I can't pull on my family to support me in this small market where I'm not making any money if the finances are not there economically for my family versus my white counterpart who can call on their family to support them. So what does that so you have some inequity there. If I can't afford to 
pursue this career, but my white counterpart can, I'm going to move elsewhere. So it's about retention, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a problem. So you have black people that are not, re- you have some black people that are not retaining and staying in a field where they don't feel supported. And, and sometimes they don't have that support from the back, from the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm because of economics and that comes, that goes down to systemic racism and, you know, economic disparity, but there needs to be a pipeline to rail. That is the, that is the key. There needs to be a pipeline to hire people of color, starting in college, even in high school, recruiting, identifying, providing representation so that students can see me and say, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And pursue it, but if they are not seeing, if we are not in the community, if they don't see us, why why would they uh, uh, strive to be us? Mm-hmm. Right. A hundred black men. I don't know if you know this, but hundred black men they they have this saying, you know, you be what you see, right? And and you're absolutely correct. But you hit on something. It is so amazing how white supremacy and, st- and, and structural inequalities work because, mm-hmm. like you hit on the very real problem in policy. We talk about like this same issue exists in Congress. Like you've seen, you've probably heard about the numerous reports. Oh, Congress is so white. Like they are, in the last episode, I had Charlene Stanberry, who's chief of staff for Congresswoman Yvette Clark. And we were talking about the lack of diversity in Congress. And it's for that very same reason, because the structural forces to get on Congress, very similar to the way you may get into, um, you know, media and and news, is that a lot of people do it through unpaid internships. Yeah. Right? And so, like, our people can't afford, especially not in D.C., we can't afford to to work in D.C. unpaid. Nor nor can we really afford to work in Congress where you're making $23,000 a year and live there. And so- the cycle, the cycle continues to repeat itself. So you, what can be done to address this? What do you think we could do? So we have pipelines where they're paying interns in policy world. Are they doing things of the sort for the news media? So I can tell you, and, and yes, they are. They're, they're getting better about that. But there are okay. still some media outlets and companies that are not doing that. Mm. My company, uh, ABC 11, ABC ONO Network, we are paying our interns. And so that is a help. Uh, that is definitely creating that pipeline. And I am seeing more outreach to HBCUs. I just saw an email recently from my own uh, company that they are making a concerted effort to really tap into these HBCUs to find talent. So things are changing, but it shouldn't have it shouldn't take the death of George Floyd and a racial reckoning in 2020 for something like this to happen. This should have happened 50, 60 years ago. 50, 60 years ago. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. I want to I want to transition the, the conversation a little bit because one other thing we talk about what this these inequities and there are definitely inequities along along the lines of pay, along the lines of like race, um, class. But I want to talk about the inequities that exist in terms of the way women and men are treated um, in general. Right. I mm. I hear quite often um, women critique on their attire right and like yeah like you know and and give me the back end of this like the stations don't usually pay for your clothes is that correct or they do because i don't know so it just depends on who you work for okay. all right and it depends on how you negotiate your contract all right uh-huh. uh so some stations they do they give you a wardrobe allowance others do not some give you a makeup allowance um so it just varies from station to station, but yes, women and men in my industry are judged very differently. Mm. I was just having a conversation with a colleague of mine, how she is judged harshly by her looks, by people, by viewers. And I don't, I don't get nearly the, uh, the number of comments uh, that my female colleague get about her appearance. There's also this thing where your managers sort of control your look as well. Mm. So, you can't just go and dye your hair a different color uh, without consulting with your manager because they've hired you for a certain look. Oh wow! And so I can I can give you a personal example. You know I'm barefaced, 
Mm-hmm. Ideally, I would love to have a, a mustache and a beard, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but for the longest period, my my managers they prefer me to have a clean shaven face. And when I try to go rogue on them and, and just grow it out without consulting them, I started getting emails. Mm. So it's from the managers. From the managers, like what's going on here? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, so it, it's it's a very real thing. Um, it's their investment in, in 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 you. You are a product. And they paid for how they hired you. So there is some of that going on. But it, it just to go back to your question. Yes, women certainly in this business get much harder and rougher than men. Mm. And so I've, I've heard stories about news, um, newscasters and anchors who black women who decided to wear their hair natural. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, it caused a, a fit. And, yeah. you know, like they literally get hate mail based upon what they wear and outfits. Have you experienced, I know you talked about your, your mustache and your beard, but have you experienced like hate mail or, or like nasty messages from like consumers of the news, like regular people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and there's a toxic masculinity as well that goes along with uh, how I've been treated, right? So mm. I've, I've had viewers tell me, you need to man up a bit, you know, you need to speak deeper, you know? And it's like, like it, it can be a mind game. Um, I've also had people talk about, you know, the, the color tie that I'm wearing with my shirt. I mean, it can get very trivial, you know, or, you know, you need to, you need to, you know, shave your head or something like that. Like you, you need a haircut. Like it, it just, they can pick you apart. You have to have a strong skin in this business when you are in front of the camera. For sure, and I have definitely developed that. I know the difference between constructive, you know, criticism and feedback, and just blatant, out, blatant, you know, disrespect. Mm. For sure, I, like you are. I think you're shining the light for me for sure. But on so many, to so many people as well, on like the backside of this business, the things that people never see unless you know they go searching for it. Because right. I was, I was shocked to hear like these newscasters and these news anchors and, 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 and women who were just sharing, like, like it is so hard. And like, sometimes they're, they're like, they're, they're crying. They, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because the messages that they're receiving are, are so hateful. And I even found out there is a group for women where they share ideas about clothes and where they get their dresses from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a part of a uh, black men on TV group. Oh, really? And so we do the same thing. We talk about, okay, guys, where can we get, you know, some suits on discount, you know, mm-hmm. or where do you go to get your suits or where do you go to get your razors? Because I'm, I'm having razor burn and that type of thing. So it's the same type of thing. You know, what, what's the best makeup for TV? Like we share mm. those things in the group as well. What so colors listen, you should wear. Yeah. Yeah. This informal network exists. Absolutely. It, and, and, Absolutely. and it's probably vital to like your ability to hang in there for these past 15 years. Definitely. <laughs> now, the group hasn't been around for the last 15 years, but it has been around for the last three years that I've been uh-huh. a part of. And it has been it's been a blessing because it is black men in, in our in my industry, television, where we have a safe space to talk about all the issues that we go through as black men in this business. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to retain black men in this business. Right. Mm-hmm. Because. If you are starting, I mean, you don't make a lot of money starting out in this in, in television. You don't. I mean, it's that is where you are. You have to hustle and you're basically hazed. And so you have the younger brothers in this group that I'm a part of that need inspiration. They need motivation. They need a pep talk because they don't know how much longer they can stay in making, you know, very little money. Right. Right. You know, right. and so that also that's also a retention problem. Right. Yeah. If they don't have the financial backing from family, they may be in a relationship and they may need to be the breadwinner for the person that, you know, that they're in a, in a relationship with. And mm-hmm. so it's all those stressors, that, those outside stressors as well that play a factor. So let me ask you a question. What can listeners, right? What, what role mm-hmm. can listeners play in creating a more equitable newsroom and like media outlet? Do we I'm have so a role? I'm so you asked. Absolutely, you have a role. Absolutely. Okay. okay. You are the consumer. So you have a choice of what you want to see. And if you do not like the fact that you are, so let's say that you are, and I'm just putting this out there, you are in Jackson, Mississippi, 
where you know majority of that town is black, but you see two white main anchors on the desk and you in a majority black city, you have a right to demand to call the station, send emails to the general manager, the news director to say, hey, I want to see more representation. You know, absolutely consumers have the power. If you are not getting the stories that you want to see, send emails. Absolutely. If you don't like how a story was presented or you felt like that story uh, was not balanced and was not fair, you have the power to speak up and say something about it in a respectful way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But go to management. I mean, yeah, you can post it on social media, but go to the source. Mm. Contact the station, and they will Let listen. Your voice be heard. They will absolutely. This is so. I don't. I don't know. If a lot of people know that. I don't know that people absolutely. have. They realize that they have the ability to do that. I, and you just said, "What if you don't like, you know, the way a story is presented, and you feel like a story is imbalanced?" One thing that we get a lot of flack for, and I'm sure you know this, Tim. That some some would say that like black people are represented very negatively in the press, right? For example, when something happens, you and I both mm. know, it appears that they find someone who is you know maybe the most disheveled, right? Or oh, or, or, or or don't have the ability to to speak as intelligently as we would want them to, you mm-hmm. know. And and or like let's say example when a black person commits a crime and the picture that they show, right? Is is always like oh they make sure a picture of the black person sticking their middle finger up or with gold fronts in their tooth in their teeth. However, when when white individuals commit crimes, oh we have their we have their their college graduation picture cap and gown, right? And like like what what is this? Why is this the case? Is this systematic? Like what is going on? It is a complicated. That is a very very complicated question to answer. I can tell you that my station we have a policy on mugshots. Okay. Uh, so we are not just putting up a mugshot just because a police agency has given us a, a mugshot. It, there has to be a criteria that has to be met before we decide, okay, are we going to run this mugshot? And one, is there a threat to the community? Like that's mm-hmm. the very top criteria. If we don't put this mugshot out, you know, is it necessary for us to do that for public safety? Um, but there are other nuanced issues, right? So I can just give you one off the, you know, this this one off the top of my head. But let's say that there's a black person that is accused of a, a crime. Um, they're shot by police. Um, we talk to the family. The family gives us one nice photo of them, but mm-hmm. we also know that there was a warrant for that person's arrest, and and that is why police were after them. In context, you, the idea is to show both pictures. The family speaking with us, they want this picture presented. But we also have to acknowledge that this person was under arrest for a crime, or or not under arrest, but there was a warrant for his arrest for X, Y, and Z crime. And so we use this picture. So I think things have to be in context. But I I agree with you. Too often we see people that look like us plastered on TV, plastered on the website with all these mugshots, and it creates this perception that we are violent, aggressive people. And that's a trope that has been going on for ages that, yes, needs to be stopped. But there are nuances to how we do this. Mm. And that's Tim, always a challenge. Tim, I want to push you. I want you know, I, I want to push you a little bit because I think that this is, this is probably one of the most important things I, I think about. I, I mean, we just see this all the time. I, I yeah. go back to Trayvon Martin. Yeah. I think that I was like the first, you know, I was coming of age. I was really like, really getting a, a firm understanding of how like systemic oppression works. Trayvon Martin, you know, a lot of, at the beginning, you were seeing pictures with his hat backwards. You were seeing, you know, I think he had a picture with a grill himself. Yeah, I remember right? seeing that. Uh-huh. Right, right. And and it wasn't until people began to say, you know, Trayvon is the victim here, right? Like, like. Let's treat him like that. And, and I know he has pictures that display him in a different light because media has the power to persecute and to set mm-hmm. free, right? Absolutely. To persecute, to exonerate. And a lot of times, you, especially, you know, you deal with individuals who, who, you know, deal with the law and they always say, we don't want this tried in the media. 
Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I think this goes back and I can say some things that maybe you can't because I don't work in the media. But I think this goes back to who is in charge. I think it goes back to who is in charge, because, you know. If they could see individuals not as criminals, Mm -hmm. but as their as their son, as their daughter, as their niece, as their nephew, as their grandbaby, then the pictures that they would put up, in my opinion, would be different. And and Brian Stevenson has a quote that always, I mean, just resonates with me. And I believe it fervently that people are better than the worst thing that they've ever done. So, you I know, like that. I, that they are, right? And so, like, if we could see individuals' humanity, then maybe these pictures that we post would be different. Or maybe the people that they go and find, because it appears to me that they always find, like, like some of the... <laughs> Like some of the worst, you know, quote unquote, air quote, like that they could find. You know what I mean? Like, okay. and 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 that's that's that's. I don't know. It's just troubling to me the way we're represented. And, and and you know, there is definitely truth to that, Terrell. There is definitely truth. And I have made a more cognizant effort, uh, particularly with Black women, um, that when I am about to interview them, and in my eyes, if I if I'm seeing a bonnet or if I'm seeing you know something out of place, to ask them. Are you okay with how you look right now? Because it, mm. at the end of the day, it is the person, right? That if they yep. are okay presenting the way they are presenting, then fine. But I have made a much more concerted effort to look at my interview subject, particularly Black women, and make sure that, okay, it, are you okay with, with this, what I'm seeing? Are you okay with the with this wording that I'm seeing on your shirt? Say, mm. You know, those types of things. I have done a much better job of that over the years. But a lot of times... I'm not, I'm not gonna say a lot of times. Sometimes we are in situations as reporters where we are on a scene and we need perspective immediately. Mm. We have to go live in 15 minutes. I'm seeing a crowd of people around this crime scene. Somebody knows something. Will somebody please talk to me? And that's you know, who will talk. <laughs> so, somebody will come. You know where I'm going. You know where yeah. I'm going. Yeah. Uh, homeboy, homegirl will come over and talk with me. And I need that perspective. I need that perspective because they mm. represent that community and they know something that I don't know that can provide context to what's going on out here. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that you ask your subjects, individuals who you're interviewing, are you okay with what you're presenting? I, yes. I think that that's a great, I think that that's a great first step. I think that's a yes. great first step and I appreciate that. I appreciate that because that's something that 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 you know my friends and I we we just always notice that and that's something that we take into consideration who has the opportunity to be to be um, interviewed. But just yeah. I, I want to switch a little bit because you talked about this concerted effort that news stations are are making to get individuals from HBCUs and and, and diversity. You have a very distinct pedigree, right? So you attended mm. Winston-Salem State University, we know. Yeah. But on the back end, you also got your master's from John Hopkins. Yes. So like, yes. how do you feel like your HBCU experience prepared you to do what you do now? And do you think that you get additional looks because you have you now have that master's from John Hopkins? I definitely think that the Johns Hopkins title puts me in this realm of, oh, oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, you, you might be about something, right? Uh-huh. Whereas why couldn't my HBCU, you know, bachelor's degree give me that same, you know, look? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do realize that. And I also realize that sometimes I have used that phrasing of, you know, I'm a Johns Hopkins graduate to let y'all know that, you know, I got it together, right? Like, you know, yeah. so, I, so I use it as a privilege as well, but I'm just as proud of my HBCU experience. And I will say this, because I have been in that space and I'm looking at the people that are in my class and I'm thinking, how did you get here? And they don't look like me, but I'm like, you, you, you struggling right now. I'm doing fine, but you struggling. And you're talking about dropping out. And so I, I, I say that to say that, that HBCUs do matter. They are yeah. still relevant. And 
I do. I, I never have looked at a PWI as being better than an HBCU. I just have never done that because of coming from an HBCU and I know the quality of the people that are there. But I do realize that some people separate the two. Yeah. But I'm here to say that there is no difference. Mm. Mm. I just want to shout out Hall Patterson because, you know, I, my, <laughs> and for those of y'all don't know, Hall Patterson is the MassCom building on the campus yes. of Winston-Salem State University. And my That's how minor, I first met you. Exactly. My minor was speech communication. So I spent time in in hall patterson a lot of time actually um shout out to miss bradford too because yeah yeah so like yeah i mean um i think that's super important i i have friends who who came behind i have a good friend a young a young 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 gentleman uh matt love you matt it's like a he's really like a little brother to me but just graduated from central with a degree in mass communications and i think some of those same barriers that you mentioned you faced 15 years ago Mm-hmm. He faced and, is, and he is still facing now, much to the point where I'm not sure that he will even go into mass communications field because Man. it's very difficult. Yeah. So, so, so that leads me to to ask you this next question: Who helped you? Did you have mentors who kept you motivated and who pulled you up when you felt like you know maybe you were hitting rock bottom? And like, who, who were these individuals? Did they look like you? Did you have black male mentors? And like, how did you navigate that? That is such an excellent question. So while I was at Winston-Salem State University, I was connected to the National Association of Black Journalists. Okay. They have a student short course in North Carolina A&T. So what they do is they select 20 or so students from across the country, not just HBCUs, but just black students, from across the country and they send them to North Carolina a and they put together a 30 minute newscast. I was selected for that program my senior year at Winston-Salem State. When I got into the program, you were being advised and mentored by professional journalists, all of mm-hmm. them black. Mm-hmm. That is where I met my mentor to this day still, Anthony Wilson. Mm. He is a, I know you know him because he's uh, a reporter and an anchor here in this market, ABC Mm -hmm. 11, Mm -hmm. but I met him as a student and he has been there with me throughout these 15 years. When it came time for me to start that production assistant job, again, I did not want it. I did not want the job, but I reached out to Anthony and I said, Anthony, you know, I want to be a reporter. You know, I've sent out these tapes. I haven't gotten any callbacks, but there's this production assistant opportunity available. Should I take it? Mm -hmm. And his Mm -hmm. answer was yes. Because sometimes you have to go through the back door to get to where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I took that advice as gospel. And he was right. I hustled, hustled, as I mentioned earlier. And I was able to get on air within four to five months. And wow. so he has been my primary mentor throughout these years of me just getting feedback from him, talking to him about the business. But you also, as you go along in, in this industry, you collect mentors. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that is what I have been able to do along the way. They're black um, men, black women. I have some white mentors that I found along the way uh, that have helped me. They have guided me. And so I think that the key is if you really want whatever you are interested in, whatever your passion is, find somebody that you are inspired by that is doing that work, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that is tangible, that you can reach out to and make a connection. Seriously. Yeah, because that is where it starts. For sure, for sure. I think about, I think about my mentors. I think about uh, Nigel Lawson, and he, I've had him on yeah. the podcast. You know, Chairman Nigel Lawson. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Like, if if it wasn't for him, you know, and I still call him, you know, eleven, twelve o'clock at night, and I've wow. always had unfettered access to him. And, That's awesome. Uh, and you know, my my father died uh, ten years ago. 10 years ago, last February. Oh, wait, February Mine 18th. died eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And I can say this with 100% certainty that I have not made one major decision in my life without the advice and, 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 and like just a conversation without, with Chairman Nigel Lawson. He's that been there awesome. for every, like, and like, so people talk about mentors like this, this, 
I mean, yeah, so that is that is real and we need them. And so I yes. do encourage you to like find people who are doing what you want to do and who've done it and like connect with them. And I think one thing that I can say is like people are more apt to help than they're than they're not, right? And I think that that's Absolutely. one thing that we have to get over our our like not wanting to do that. Let me ask you this one thing, like what what is one thing you wish you would have known when you started your career that you know? <laughs> I knew going in that there was not a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but what I wish that I had did differently uh, was get a roommate, right? Mm -hmm. Like I tried to do all of this on my own, move to a different city, you know, start this life. And I should have been thinking, okay, you realize that you cannot afford, that you're, you're going to struggle while you're, you're hustling. Get yourself a roommate. Get just mm -hmm. find find us some support. So that is what I that is the mistake that I made because again, I was working two jobs, six days a week, and getting very little sleep. Mm. You know, and just trying to make it. And I think having some support there, having a roommate that I could connect with, help pay the bills, I think that would have helped with my mental health. Mm. So can it, you you moved away from your family? You were in a place where like you were the only person you didn't know anyone. For didn't a know job? anyone. Didn't know anyone but that one friend who said, "Hey, there's a production assistant job here. If you're interested, I can put in a good word." Mm. That was the only person I knew. There are so many connecting themes to like our stories, both you know you and I, but as well as a lot. I talk to a lot of people. You know what I mean? Like I mm -hmm. literally talk to a lot of people and I think that our stories are similar. What we do is similar in in a, in a, in, a, in a way because what I am is I you're a storyteller, right? You tell the yeah. story. I am a story collector, right? Mm. So like working working in policy, um lobbying, we have this saying that like data is good, but stories move people hard. Absolutely. Right. Right. So like I can tell you that, oh, you know, 30 percent of this bill would would help 30 percent more people get, you know, access to the health care that they need. But if I tell you a story about a young lady who had to quit her job and needs this to survive, you will remember that. And Absolutely. So I learned that when I was working on President Obama's campaign, that like all I do is collect stories and I determine which story fits best for whatever situation that I'm in. And, and, and thinking about this, you know, Tim, a lot of people don't know this, but I think that there's a recipe for success, right? Okay. And I think the recipe, the recipe, it, it, you may have to put the ingredients in in different orders, right? For a different individual. Sure. But I think the first ingredient is being willing to overcome your fear of failure. Mm. I think yeah. being, being courageous yeah. Because um, and like being willing to bet on yourself. Right. Yes. And and, and yes. I think about all of those things. A lot of people don't know this. I haven't shared this with with too, too many people. But I moved to Dallas sight unseen. Never seen Dallas when I moved to Dallas, Texas to 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 work wow. for two sight wow. unseen. And prior to that. Prior to living in Dallas, I was living in D.C., finishing grad school, finishing my master's. I had I was on President Obama's uh, election campaign, killed it, re-election, mm. killed the campaign, right? <laughs> like literally, I was in I was responsible for registering like the highest number of voters in the state of North Carolina. Like my numbers were amazing. Nice. But one thing that I know is that was in 2012, and in two and and we were just getting over. I wouldn't even say we were over yet. Um, the the like just the terrible economic situation that yeah. was 2008 up until then, and yeah. so a lot of people a lot of people did not leave President Obama's campaign like they stayed on because jobs were not plentiful. Right. And right. so I quit my job to work on moved to North Carolina to work on the campaign. When I came back to D.C., when I came back to D.C., I couldn't find a job, at least not one really? that paid me. Yeah, I couldn't find one that paid me, you know, enough to like survive, and right. so. I, I was finishing grad school and I was, you know, I, I didn't have a job. So I was living off my savings and I was living mm. off initially a little bit of unemployment that I received from the campaign. But when I moved to Dallas, 
I was for all intents and purposes homeless, right? Mm. I stayed I stayed in an extended stay for six months. Part of it was Dallas wow. was Dallas was so hard. Dallas was so hard for me. Um, being away from my family. I knew no one there. I took the job sight unseen. Shout out to Lacey Pittman Tamonic, who was my manager um, and who loved on me. And I love her to this day. And there was another lady. I didn't even have a vehicle because I had told my vehicle I was living in D.C. I stayed in the airport. People don't know this, Tim. You're like, no, very few what? people know this. Tim, I stayed in the airport when I arrived for like four hours because I had no idea where I was going to live. And so I knew I had to find somewhere to stay that was on any sort of public transportation that could get me where I worked downtown. Yeah. And I, I knew that my mother emptied out her bank account. My now, my now wife also gave me some money. And that is what I survived off of. And I lived in an extended stay for six months paying weekly. Mm. And, and I, there were many nights where I would come up and it was a little room, right? So it was a room with yeah. a bed bathroom yeah. around the corner, a hot plate, and a little box TV. Wow. And there would be many nights, man, where I would come home and just cry because it was so hard. Yeah. It was so it was so hard. But I also know that like that experience gave me the strength I needed to know that I can overcome anything. I got so close to God, but I think mm. I also got close to people and I began to see people in a different way. And one of the mm. most one of the most poignant memories that I ever remember is I was coming home. It was it was late in the afternoon, but in Texas it would get dark at ten o'clock. Like it would get oh. dark at ten o'clock in Texas, right? It was so crazy. Okay. <laughs> and I was coming home late, and we we're all in extended stay. Mind you, like you could tell that people who were living there did not make you know a lot mm. of money. Yeah. I think I I think I made like fifty thousand at that point, right? Okay. And I didn't get paid the first month. I had to work a month in the hole. So that 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 nice. made it even worse. Sure. But I'm going to tell you this. There was a family. It was, you know, the bottom of it, there was nothing but ACs, air-conditioned units. And the family had a portable grill out. A little boy, would, he had, it was a father, a, um, a father, a mother, two kids. And I would throw the football with them a couple of times when I come home, just throw it with them. And mm -hmm. I'll never forget this one night. I don't know, maybe they got some money or something, but Tim, they were grilling hamburgers and hot dogs. They only had a few, but they were grilling hamburgers and hot dogs on the AC unit on a little portable, on a, it was wow. a portable grill, but they had to set, they had set it up there. And, but one thing I tell you is this, they looked at me, they said, hey man, you want it? You want one of our hamburgers? And I never forget, I ate one of those hamburgers, threw the football with those, with that family, the little boy. Yeah. And I went upstairs in my room and like, I, I cried. And it was happy tears because I knew that they didn't have much. None of us had much. Yeah. But they yeah. gave they gave out of nothing, right? And that, that really yeah. showed me to like look and see, like no matter where people are, what state, what state they are in in their life, like there's always a way that you can sow into others. Absolutely. And, like, and, and I lie to you not to this very day, I always keep cash on me. And anytime mm. I see someone and they ask me for money, like I give it. Like my daughters give. Like when we were riding, my daughters say, "Roll the window down, Dad." And my daughter, if we don't have any cash, my daughters say, "I'm praying for you," right? Like my daughters nice. will say that, and like I never forgot that. And so, I, 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 I just think that that is so important to know that, like those experiences, right? Like you yeah. go to these different places, you can't, you, you don't know how you're going to make it, but believing in yourself, those are things that really help. Belief, us. yes. Believe. I want to ask you this in, in, in closing, like what parting words would you leave with black people who come behind you? Right? Like what mm. advice do you want to give to them? The people who are pursuing a role in the, in the media, what do you want to say to them? What are your parting words? I want to say, believe in yourself. It will work out. Things may not look good. You may face some adversity. You may face some challenges, but if you stick with it, if this is what you truly want to do, this is passion work, and you feel that you are called to do it, don't turn your back on this industry because we need you. We just spent an hour talking about why we need people of color in my industry. So don't you back out. Stay the course. It will work out. I'm a living witness. 
A living witness. Tim, where can our listeners connect with you online if they want to if they want to just connect with you? They're inspired by you. Okay. I am on Instagram. That's Tim period Pulliam. That's an M at the end. Tim period Pulliam. Instagram. Twitter at Tim ABC11. And I'm also on Facebook, Tim Pulliam. Tim, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, for shedding a light on so many different issues that that remain in the dark for so many people who are not deeply embedded in this industry. Thank you for being a light. Thank you for staying the course. And I have no doubt that we're going to continue to see your, your name in those bright lights. Thank you for joining us tonight, Tim. Thank you, Terrell, for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Black Work Experience Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. If you would like to hear more, follow us on IG at BWEP. We're also on Twitter at BWE Podcast. Black Work Experience is hosted and produced by me, Robert Stevens. Our show is mixed by strategic communication specialist, Sarah Daggett. Find out more about her amazing work at DaggettConsultingLLC.com. That's Daggett, D-A-G-G-E-T-T, consultingllc.com. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Wright. If you would like to contribute to Mail Time, please submit your Mail Times on our IG at BWE Pod. You can also DM us on Twitter at BWE Podcast or via email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com.